0: It's Wednesday, March 6th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hell joining me in studio today from fool.com, Austin Smith and Eric Bleeker. Gentlemen, neither rain nor snow, nor sleet nor dark of night, nor terrible drivers in the D.C. area will, will keep us from our appointed podcast.
1: I, I'm just here to see you, Chris.
0: <laughs> um, you know, if, you're, if you look at the headlines coming out of Washington, D.C., the federal government is shut down because of the snowstorm. But we don't, we don't shut down. That's not how we roll. We no. are somehow no. more efficient than the government. Somehow, <laughs> some way, um, uh, we're going to sort of step back from the news of the day a little bit uh, and tackle a few big questions. But we're going to start with something that is very much in the news this week, and that is the Dow hitting a new all-time high. Um, and Austin, I'll just go to you first on this. I suppose it's a matter of perspective. All the headlines are about you know the Dow hits a new all-time high. Our colleague Morgan Housel on Twitter this morning put it a different way, which was, you know, another way of looking at this is that the Dow has been flat since October 2007. <laughs> so, Austin taking a, a, or Morgan taking a different view there. But what, when you look at this market and all of the headlines are about the Dow, what, what is sort of a headline that isn't being reported that you mm-hmm. think is key for investors? I, I think the interesting thing, at
1: least, in what I'm seeing in, in my sort of casual research is that there are some. Really, really smart minds and hedge funders and really incredible investors who've got just phenomenal, you know, 25-year track records. Guys like Ray Dalio, uh, Howard Marks, basically kind of taking opposite sides right now. And it's this market where people, you know, even though we've gone on this great bull run, people are on totally different sides of the fence about whether or not we're basically building up to another bubble or whether or not it's got room to run, you know. Ray Dalio was really, really aggressive at the beginning of this year, um, which was a great time to be aggressive. Sure. You know, I think the Dow was up 6 or 7% in January. And then we've got Howard Marks basically saying that this is the exact same behavior and attitude that we saw the market doing right before the meltdown, which obviously strikes a bit of fear in people. Yeah. So I, the the really interesting, interesting thing that I see is that this isn't a high where everybody's on board. There's a lot of people, a lot of really intelligent people on the side saying, whoa, whoa, pump the brakes, guys.
0: Yeah. And we see that with individual stocks too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's a little bit more dramatic, but you see this with hedge fund managers, you know, taking opposite sides of J.C. Herbalife, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, Eric, when you think of the market writ large, what what sort of stands out is under the radar, not getting as much attention as the Dow hitting a new all time high.
2: Yeah, what well, kind of stands out is at the time it's doing this, earnings stink. I think in the fourth quarter, it was earnings were up less than one percent year over year, and we saw expectations. Falling across the entire year. And now we see expectations way too high for this year and they're gonna to have to come down. What this actually says is a triumph of kind of long term investing in a way, because if I had told you at the start of last year, corporate earnings were going to be down across the entire year, you probably would have sold the market short with every dollar you owned. Right. Yet it it's at all time highs now. So it just kind of reemphasizes the traits of buying really quality companies for the long term.
0: Um, when you talk about um, you know expectations, are there are there industries that you look at that you think are are essentially out of whack? I, I'm I'm always of two minds when it comes to companies setting expectations. On the one hand, uh, it's it's good to get guidance. On the other hand, I feel like there are companies, some better than others. That's sandbag, um, just so that when earnings time rolls around, that they can like, oh, we beat uh, you know our, our horribly <laughs> low expectations. Um, maybe Hewlett Packard is a, is an example of that when you look at the fact that it's up f- somewhere in the neighborhood of forty five percent just over the last couple of months. But are, are there any industries in particular that you focus on when it comes to the expectations game? Well,
2: I think technology is obviously really interesting. That uh, people historically just got so used to, oh, these tech companies are so expensive, and now it's becoming one of the cheapest fields in the markets, the lowest performer of all sectors this entire year. And you do have some companies which can drive really phenomenal growth in the sector, trading at or near single-digit PEs. So, that's one field I found very intriguing. And I think from this point, people could find some really great deals across the next five years.
0: Uh, Sticking with technology over the next five years, the two biggest tech companies, Austin, Apple and Google, Apple's 15-year run for the stock, if obviously you back out the last six months or so, um, <laughs> you know, uh, it maybe unprecedented, maybe never to be duplicated. Um, when you look at these two companies, which one do you think is going to fare better from the perspective of the stock mm-hmm. over the next couple of years? I, I'm a happy shareholder of both,
1: but I'm actually going to pick Apple here, uh, even despite the last few months. It, it it's purely a valuation game. They're they're so incredibly cheap. Their balance sheet has some 140 billion in cash on it right now. It Could not be more fortress like. And Google, equally, yeah, they have a lot of cash and a great balance sheet, but they're they're more than twice as expensive. Um, Apple still has a, a phenomenal cash generating machine in the form of you know their tablets and iPhones just continue to pump out cash. So uh, they are too cheap now, in my opinion, to not outperform Google in three to five years.
0: What about you, Eric?
2: Yeah, and I think this has become kind of a Wall Street game on the way up. It's who can have the highest price target, which we're kind of seeing with Google right now. Yeah. And with Apple now on the way down, their expectations are a little too high for the coming quarter. So every analyst is trying to get in ahead of the other, lower their targets, move their you know projections from buy to sell. But then we get into the latter half of the year and comps get easier again. And you realize, oh, this is a phenomenal company trading at a single-digit P. So, you know, I think they're both great companies, but... Google trades about three times as expensive right now, and uh, I just think Apple's going to be the better performer from here on out. If I had to have that time period,
0: one thing that I think often gets overlooked about Google, or about Apple's cash is that so much of it is overseas. Mm-hmm. Um, so when people say, "Oh, you know, they've got 140 billion in cash, why don't they just, you know, pay a massive one-time dividend?" Why did the, you know, they do that? In terms of the cash that they can do something with, that they can allocate here in the U.S., it's actually a much smaller number. How do you think about the cash in particular that they have mm-hmm. overseas?
1: Well, it, it, it is a I would say it's a overlooked problem but it's a, it's a it's one that you know the headline is It's a nice it, problem. The reality is different than the headline and <laughs> your problem right. is I have
0: 90 billion dollars <laughs> of cash overseas. Damn. The Scrooge McDuck issue yeah. of investing. <laughs>
1: Fortunately, overseas is where a lot of Apple's big growth is going to be. And Eric can definitely speak more to this, but you look at areas like China are just going to be you know, pivotal growth drivers for Apple in years ahead. And if their cash is overseas, they can still meaningfully allocate it, at least in the near term, because that's where their big growth is going to be.
2: So, two quick thoughts on this. Uh, number one, Apple still generates about 40% of its cash in the United States. If it paid out 40% of its cash, that's about a 4% dividend yield. I'll take that over a 10-year treasury, paying 2% <laughs> any day. Second thought on that, um, repatriation taxes. Um, America gets about $8 billion a year from these taxes. We're the only G7 country that does it. I think a potential catalyst, not just for Apple, but a lot of companies with cash overseas, is that taxation law could be changing in the coming year. So, I wouldn't think of that as too like hard and fast, because right. that might be coming down. Right.
1: and And that, like Eric said, that's going to apply to other companies that have Uh, hordes overseas, like Cisco, I believe, has an enormous balance overseas. I know Crocs in the retail space kind of suffers from that problem as well. I was
0: going to say, that seems like one uh, I mean, not to put too much hope in in our national legislators. We took the day off. (laughs) We took the day (laughs) off because we have snow falling from the sky. Um, But it does seem like there is just a ripe opportunity there for legislation to make it really easy uh, or certainly much more attractive for companies to bring their cash back to the U.S. And I don't, I don't know, I'm not smart enough to know what the solution is there, but it seems like if there was a way to say, hey, we're going to cut that tax by X percent, or hey, we're going to have a tax holiday, as many states do, but you got to put some of it to work to hire more people, I don't know, Austin. Do you have a thought on that, or?
1: I mean, I, I think it's kind of an our repatriation tax policy is a bit antiquated, and, and in my opinion, it sort of seems to be a a reaction from the the revulsion that people had to outsourcing. You know, there's, right. there's there's a lot of people opposed outsourcing, so we're going to make it more difficult for companies to operate there. The point is, companies are going to go where the opportunity is, and there are bigger, faster growing opportunities abroad. So that's where they're going to develop all this cash and. At this point, in my opinion, we, we don't want to get into a, the politics of it. It's silly. The cash needs to be easier to bring home, and uh, I think a, a tax holiday or just you know, rethinking the policy altogether is absolutely essential.
0: Get to work, Congress. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, another battle, and this is not so much about the stock, but uh, uh, certainly what for one company what's been an incredibly lucrative business, and that's sports programming. Uh, Fox, or I should say News Corp, made it official Uh, Maybe the worst kept secret in the world of media, but uh, uh, News Corp is launching a Fox Sports Network to compete with ESPN. Sports programming, ESPN has been highly profitable for Disney. Eric, when you see a story like this, uh, as we were talking earlier, Disney probably isn't quaking in their boots over this. uh, But I'm curious what you think about in terms of the economics, and in particular, the opportunity for News Corp.
2: Yeah, and thank God for our legal system, because they expose all (laughs) kinds of stuff to us. And Mm -hmm. in a recent lawsuit with DirecTV, I believe it was, we saw that ESPN has locked in their contracts with about 6.5% uptake rates each year and how much they get paid from cable companies shows just how tremendously powerful this company that can lock in those kind of gains for the next seven years. And I think once you start thinking about that kind of power, you go, it's going to be really hard to disrupt a company like ESPN. Even if Fox has done a great job in things like news, ESPN's a lot better than
0: CNN. I'll say that. Austin, um, is the question maybe not so much ESPN versus Fox Sports, but essentially what can Fox Sports do for News Corp? Because Sports programming is incredibly lucrative. Mm-hmm. Um, the licensing fees just keep going up. It's something that uh, where advertising on television uh, fluctuates for different programming. For sports programming, it's been a straight arrow mm-hmm. up over the last you know 30 years or whatever it is. Um, to what extent do you think this move moves the needle in a good way for News Corp?
1: I actually don't think it does. And it's to Eric's point, you know, Disney is too powerful. They simply have too big a lever to pull here. And although it is sort of like the last great corner of advertising in the TV space, ESPN is just going to continue to dominate. That pricing power is completely unrivaled. And News Corp is going to be in a waiting game, basically trying to develop a a mediocre product until something like those contracts expire. And that's five to seven years out, I believe. And even then, uh, you know, they're, they're starting back from zero. ESPN just has such a lead. So what it does for News Corp, I don't think it's, I don't think it's meaningful. When,
2: when I see competitive log chopping on NBC's uh, <laughs> sports network, I know how hard it is to get past ESPN because they've bought up almost all the lucrative packages and they often have long-term deals on them.
0: Hey, I grew up in Maine and I've been to those competitions <laughs> and it is riveting stuff. You are their one viewer. <laughs> it is riveting stuff. Tractor uh, Supply loves advertising there. <laughs> Um, next topic, and our producer, Matt Greer, may have come up with our, our, uh, a new brand here. Um, is the way he put it, first to die. Uh, so three companies. You tell me which one you think is going to be the first one to die. Best Buy, Research in Motion, or Barnes & Noble, three companies we've talked about extensively on this podcast. Um, and I, I, I don't know of anyone who thinks – the future is bright for any of these three companies. But, Eric, I'll go to you first. Which one do you think um, is closest to the grave?
2: Yeah. You know, you look at BlackBerry and trying to become that third place behind uh, Google and Apple. Good luck. I think, you know, Microsoft's going to be the one that fills that spot a lot better. But um, I think, you know, that company can be at least be acquired. Barnes & Noble, you know, I don't see a lot of people running out to especially buy some of their retail properties. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think that one's probably closest to the grave for me.
1: Mm -hmm. Austin? I'm going to the retail well and going Barnes & Noble as well. Uh, Sort of a misperception about Best Buy. Uh, Although it's not a business I want to own, they actually do produce a fair amount of cash, and they're very, very cheap to right now. I think they're trading one and a half to two times cash flow. Barnes & Noble doesn't have that same sort of uh, just cash-generating cycle. There's a lot of talk about splitting the company into either their college locations and then their regular stores and then the Nook division, which would would basically end Barnes & Noble as we know it. And I think everybody sees it as the only way at least some of the divisions can survive. They're actually relatively more expensive than a lot of these other companies like Best Buy and Research in Motion. They're six to eight times uh, enterprise value to EBITDA. So they've got a bit more ways to fall until they're that cheap. So Worst stock to own, I'm going to say Barnes &
0: Noble, first to go under Barnes & Noble. They don't have a lot of hope. You know, Barnes & Noble, I have no doubt that maybe the if you took their top 30% performing stores, that that would be a, a profitable, much smaller business. But at the same time, I look at these companies, and Barnes & Noble is the one, if you've ever had a friend who's dating someone, and and they're the only one who thinks that it's a good relationship. And you and all your friends are just <laughs> like, what are you doing? What are you doing? That's When I look at Barnes & Noble, and I base this almost entirely on my consumer experience at the two locations, Best Buy and Barnes & Noble, which are right in the same mall, not too far from Full HQ, at least in the case of Best Buy, I go in there and there's a sense that they are trying to do something. They are trying to differentiate. They're trying to offer more customer service. And in Barnes and Noble I just look and go, what are you doing? Yeah. What are you trying to do?
2: I think if you grab the top three percent of radio checks too, that might be a <laughs> decent company. But a lot of investors have gone burned uh you know, with companies that can't get out of lease agreements and mm-hmm. get dragged down not closing stores fast enough.
1: There's also a certain degree of the tide you just can't swim against here. You know, Even if Barnes & Noble had incredible economics on a per-store basis, we see an increasing number of malls being classified as subpar, which means they're generating less than $300 in sales per square foot. Barnes & Noble, as an anchor of these malls, is really going to hurt when they lock in these long-term lease agreements. They recently uh, renegotiated a lot of them, I believe, in the last 18 months. So they're in these places for a a, a long time, right? and they may have got favorable terms, but the traffic to these malls is increasing dramatically. I think 30% of all malls in the U.S. are now classified as subpar. So, even if they have wait, is it
0: increasing dramatically or decreasing dramatically?
1: There, so Barnes and Noble's, uh, so the number of malls that are classified as subpar is increasing oh, dramatically. Okay. Um, and Barnes and Noble's locked into these places for a long time. So even if they have great economics, if there's no traffic there, and you're locked in for five to seven years, it's a bad place to be.
0: Drop us an email: radio at fool Best Buy, research and motion, Barnes and Noble. Which one do you think is going to be the first to die? That's a MacRaeer branded trademark. <laughs> trademark pending. First to die. Um, uh, we'll end on a more positive note. And both you guys uh, focus on um, emerging technology. I'm curious is is there a company? Is there a stock? Is there an industry? A space? Um, certainly, if you get online at Fool.com, there's a lot of buzz around 3D printing. But I'm just curious, what's an emerging? company or technology that you think investors would do well to keep their eyes on? Eric, I'll start with you.
2: Oh, I mean, if we're looking at uh, emerging technology, I think one thing people really want to look at, some of the greatest products I'm seeing this year is Sonos system, doing wireless audio throughout the house, lights throughout the house. But the problem that's always been with this is that who wants a washer with its own little controls that you can you know, operate? What you need was that central platform for it. So I think when you look at smartphones and tablets extending as basically controllers for the whole house and the kind of gains that that can provide for an entire system. And who's the biggest tablet player? Apple. So I think there's a kind of thesis hint around this that might start playing out this year. And which can also extend to the television, so kind of an under the radar rechanging of
0: technology. You were just looking at a, a new home the other day, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. And, and and when you're walking around, were you? Did you have that in mind? Like, oh, if I've got my tablet, I can. I'm I can, drinking the Kool Aid. I've got. I, I can control the dishwasher from here.
2: Oh yeah, I've got. <laughs> I've got my wireless system. Looking at the lights that are controlled through the tablet in the house. It's it's really exciting. And like I said, it used to be there wasn't that central controller for it. Now everything can be controlled with one platform, right? So...
1: To, to that point we've also seen a lot of uh, connected stuff coming out from Whirlpool and Lowe's with their uh, Isis brand that they're trying to you know sort of roll out this idea of an ever connected but in a cohesive way home. So there are there's a lot of stuff that's suggesting it's taking off both from mm. Whirlpool Lowe's and I expect Home Depot to follow.
0: It's exciting stuff and yet for all of the fights that the television remote control has caused among spouses, I feel like this is just gonna ratchet that up. I just feel <laughs> like you know it's like give me the tablet no 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 I want to control the lights. Oh, we're just getting you a tablet for everyone. Okay, there we go. Austin, <laughs> what about you? right there. <laughs>
1: um, big uh, tech company I'm looking at, not necessarily a niche industry, but is Zillow. Um, they're a very richly priced stock, but they've got pretty incredible growth behind them. It's it's a really disruptive idea, and it's still very much in its infancy, but they're doing a lot of things right, uh, their growth both on the, the premium subscriber end has been tremendous. They're making the responsible shift away from advertising and towards you know, being more reliant on their premium members, which we like to see here at The Fool. So they're a company that's growing gangbusters. They're doing a lot of things right. I really like their management. They're expensive, but it's a company I've had my eye on for a while.
0: Is uh, And I don't Follow the real estate industry all that closely. What what is the competitive threat to the extent that there is one for Zillow?
1: The biggest competitive threat is it's twofold. It's probably Google if they wanted to knock Zillow off their perch. Now Zillow and Google recently, uh, you know, got into a little bit of a partnership. But we've seen Google in the past be quick to be quick to turn around and crush people when they yeah. decide to. So I wouldn't necessarily dismiss that entirely on the base of that relationship. So if Google wanted to come out with their Google Maps and make it a more real estate centric service, yeah. they would be a huge threat to Google and. Also, the brokers, you know, there there is a bit of difficulty with Zillow in the fact that they rely on data that's provided to them by brokers and agents. And if those guys feel like they're getting, you know, the rough end of the deal here, and there's been a little bit of dissent among the ranks, and they start pulling data from, you know, from Zillow, keeping it off, uh, that could be a lot of a lot of headaches as well. So the two biggest threats:
0: Google and brokers. We'll end there. Austin Smith, Eric Leaker, guys, thanks for being here. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Full may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy yourself stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Fully. Our future is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.